Hey friends, I'm still thinking a lot about race and housing in the U.S. this week, so that's what you're going to hear about from me. Last week, I dug into some of the factors that have prevented Black families in America from owning their own homes, and there were many. But that doesn't mean that no Black people ever lived in, designed, or loved mid-century-style houses. So today I'm going to center our episode on some really gorgeous mid-century architecture built by and for African-American families and the history behind it. We're going to talk about the National Register of Historic Places Certified Neighborhood, Collier Heights, outside Atlanta, Georgia. Hey there. Welcome back to Mid-Mod Remodel. This is the show about updating MCM homes, helping you match a mid-century home to your modern life. I'm your host, Della Hansman, architect and mid-century ranch enthusiast. You're listening to Season 3, Episode 10. You might remember that I talked about Collier Heights in the second episode of this season. I was discussing how we might make changes in our homes due to the pressure of COVID to keep more formerly social activities restricted to our homes. That's just what happened in Collier Heights due to the pressure of racial segregation. Well-off Black families built full-size lounge club spaces complete with game rooms and bars into their basements because they weren't permitted to socialize in the segregated restaurants and public spaces of Atlanta at the time. I first stumbled across the history of this amazing mid-century enclave two summers ago when I watched Hidden Figures for the third time. Speaking of movies about strong black women, if Netflix is pushing you to rewatch The Help this week, which apparently is trending, please don't. Go check out Ava DuVernay's 13th instead, or for something lighter, Hidden Figures. I'm going to pull heavily from the blog post I wrote at that time, so check the show notes if you want to see pictures from the movie associated with what I'm discussing. Hidden Figures is the story of three black female mathematicians, Katherine Johnson, Mary Jackson, and Dorothy Vaughn, working at NASA, who contributed to the beginning of the space program. When I originally watched it, I wondered if some of the beautiful home spaces we see portrayed in the movie were simply spiffed up for aesthetic purposes, Hollywood magic. So I dug deeper into the book, Hidden Figures, by Margot Lee Shetterly. Yes, I like to do research after I watch a biopic. In reality, the women first moved their families into pretty tight quarters, rental units near NASA that had been tossed together as temporary war housing and pushed into extended use long beyond the war. Eventually, though, they were able to move into nearby, well-built, all-black subdivisions. I used Google Maps to peep at Katherine Johnson's actual home in Hampton, Virginia, and it's a modest ranch that looks a lot like mine. In the movie, she lives in the most modest home as well. The cabinets in her movie kitchen, by the way, look exactly like those in my unremodeled 1952 ranch. The most stunning mid-century design set in the movie is the house of Dorothy Vaughn. The house they shot it in has clearly been updated since the mid-mod era, but in a very retro-charming style. Her kitchen, complete with contemporary 2010s waterfall countertop, is the site of one of my favorite scenes in the movie, where all three heroines blow off steam to cook, drink, and dance while they process their work trauma. I was delighted to learn that they shot the homes in the movie in Collier Heights, a historically black mid-century neighborhood outside Atlanta. So I went to learn more about it, and you can too. There's a really lovely photo essay written for Southern Spaces on Collier Heights by Lydia A. Harris, published in 2016. Check out the link in the show notes for some of her portraits of the homes and their residents. She describes how Collier Hearts was developed as a result of African-American initiative. It was specifically to serve an African-American population. As such, the houses there all had this atypical feature. The homes were developed with extra rooms intended for public space activities like seated luncheons, dances, parties, receptions, fashion shows, games, relaxation, and group TV watching. In the Hidden Figures movie, Dorothy's house has just such a space included. 
all the main characters are dancing in the recreation room with a very professional-looking bar when news of the successful Sputnik flight is dropped into the plot of the movie. Later, many people gather at her home to watch the shuttle launch on TV as a group. The Southern Spaces article quotes Henry Herbert Baxton, a government worker and resident of Collier Heights, who remembers, I think about our getting together like we once did, and it was basically because we did entertain in our basement, or in our recreation area, that's what we called it. And that's where we had our parties. That's where we had dances and all meetings in our basement. See, we come in here and entertain in this living room, but that recreational room downstairs is where we came and had our dances, where we had club meetings and so forth. Most of the homes around here are equipped that way. Why, though? Let's focus back on Atlanta during the mid-century period. The book, The Separate City, Black Communities in the Urban South, 1940-1968, describes how, in fashioning, and I quote, the modern metropolis, Atlanta, Memphis, and Richmond relied on planning policies to institutionalize the separateness of class and race worlds that had been sustained loosely in the unplanned city of the 1900s. While the federal government was subsidizing mortgages for white families, available to even those with blue-collar jobs, most black families, still recovering from the economic depression and upheaval of World War II, were offered federal funding for public housing projects, concentrated apartment blocks that served to keep them firmly in place and limit both their opportunities and their interactions with the rest of the population. Cities also planned ways to limit black expansion into certain areas. In Atlanta, the mayor created the West Side Mutual Development Committee, or the WSMDC, to consider the various living, building, and developmental problems of the west side of our city. The city, which had both black and white members, wasn't explicitly created to preserve racial segregation, but that was its unstated goal. If there's a good spin to put on this, what they intended at the time was to cut down on the hate crime and violence which seemed to inevitably follow when black families moved into newly created neighborhoods for, and I use that for in air quotes, white families. You know, rather than criminalizing and preventing that kind of racially motivated terrorism, they just thought it would be easier to keep everyone nice and separate. Cool story. Anyway, the WSMDC sidestepped the inconvenient federal law that said you couldn't zone for race by just making private arrangements and handshake deals with developers to keep some areas for black people and most of them for white. Their goal was to concentrate Atlanta's black population on the west side, as the book is titled, in a separate city. And I should point out, this practice wasn't always explicitly being imposed on black civil advocates by white people. African-American city leaders were also invested in the idea of a primarily black neighborhood. They weren't doing this for kicks, though. They were trying to find a refuge, a safe space to thrive. And the alternative, per a report of the black-led Urban League at the time, was that black migration into so-called white neighborhoods would result, and here I'm actually quoting, in mob violence and the dynamiting of the homes of Negroes. So they made the best of a bad situation. They were able to work through organizations like the WSMDC to pressure the city to make public improvements to some of these new black-developed neighborhoods. Collier Heights advocated for street paving, drainage, lighting, and a park and golf course. Of course, that came hand-in-hand with the building of highways that were meant to physicalize implied racial boundaries and later served to cut off black communities from their surrounding areas. If I've piqued your interest, you can read the whole book, The Separate City. It's available online in full via the University of Kentucky's U-Knowledge program. There's a link in the show notes. You can also get a little more Atlanta context and background from the Collier Heights episode of the Archive Atlanta podcast by Victoria Lemos. 
I'm telling you a story, she shares a wealth of primary research. She shares a little about the history of that early development of the area, too, and points out that even more than the architecture, the enduring legacy of Collier Heights is the who's who of Black influential Atlanta who lived there. They include the parents of Martin Luther King, influential leaders, teachers, doctors, Black police officers, and the CEO of the Citizens Trust Bank. Remember, I was talking last week about how federally-backed loans were not available for redline neighborhoods, those which housed Black families. Interestingly, when I looked up the Citizens Trust Bank, I found an article from 1988 in the Atlanta Journal-Constitutional, which was—drumroll, please—highlighting the disparity of available home loans for Black people and for homes in predominantly Black communities by a 5-to-1 margin. The article quotes a number of sanctimonious heads of other major banks claiming they have no idea how this could happen and basically they don't see color. Then they blame the poor quality of housing in Black-owned areas. Ed Wood, then the executive vice president of Citizens Trust Bank, argued back that this is where the Black community of Atlanta has a name nationally. He points out that his bank makes more loans to Black families than white, and in fact, Citizen Trust has a lower default rate than the largest six banks in the city. Again, Ed Wood, saying, I don't see our default ratio being any higher because we're working in the Black community. I wouldn't be banking if I gave money away. So we're still in it, folks. Racial discrimination in housing continues from the mid-century era into 1988 when my little sister was born and right up to this day. One of the architects of custom Collier Hearts homes was J.W. Robinson. He trained at Hampton University but was unable to practice for years due to racist policy. He made ends meet by teaching high school geometry, and he was known for inspiring his students to go into architecture and engineering when they grew up. He was able to design over 200 houses for black families in Atlanta before being licensed because Georgia, like Wisconsin, doesn't require a licensed architect for home design. He was finally recognized with an architecture license in 1970 and went on to found his own firm, which still exists today. Per their website, Mr. Robinson used architecture to reshape changing communities with compassion during a time of segregation. He created homes with exceptional recreational facilities so that people unable to use the public spaces could socialize, entertain, and host political gatherings in the privacy of their own homes. As a mentor to scores of African-American architects through his practice, Mr. Robinson understood the need to enhance the profession for future generations and was a charter member of the National Organization of Minority Architects. In 1995, he was the first African-American in Georgia to become a fellow of the AIA. This is so important. Architecture is a field which requires three things for professional certification. You have to graduate from an accredited design school, you have to practice under the supervision of other licensed architects, and you have to pass a series of licensing exams. Setting aside the difficulties which then and now exist to make it hard for minority students to get into college and make it through, the need to get hired by an existing firm in order to earn the experience necessary for a license can prove an impenetrable catch-22. Edward Miller was another black architect who lived in and designed for Collier Heights. He was licensed in Alabama in 1941, and he returned to his hometown, Atlanta, and worked both in his own firm as a solo practitioner. Per Archive Atlanta, his firm was for many years one of the only places where young black aspiring architects could get the necessary experience they required before sitting for their licensing exams. I urge you to pop over to the show notes, where I'll have links and images for a number of homes in Collier Heights. Lydia Harris's photo essay, to which I've linked, is particularly impressive. Being active and curious mid-mod remodelers, you'll find some inspiration for your own mid-century homes there. But we also have to remember that these homes come in context. Even in the beautiful homes of Collier Heights, we can see the marks and scars of racism. These homeowners didn't invest their hard-earned money in full-size basement party rooms and meeting spaces for fun. They did it because they had no alternative. 
So this isn't really the story about a silver lining, nor is it an example of solutions that point the way forward today. We will not make America better by building better quality segregated spaces. But I do see Collier Heights and the dedicated citizens who built it as an example of making lemonade out of some pretty sour lemons. It's a lot like the story of Hidden Figures, really, an uplifting tale of three smart black women who made it, cherry-picked out of a history that has generally overlooked their talents. We can, indeed we must, do better. We need to do more for young designers, for new and future home buyers, and for our whole community. Because we certainly won't build a better future if we haven't paid proper attention to the history of how we got here. If you want to learn more about what I've been discussing today, you'll find links to the photos, articles, books, and the Archive Atlanta podcast in my show notes at midmod-midwest.com slash 310. Next week, I'll be transitioning back to remodeling advice. But I hope that today you've found some inspiration and some new resolve in the story of Collier Heights. Keep learning, friends. Let's all keep learning, friends, and we'll chat again next week. 